Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name's Dan Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And we are joined today by Olivia Lilly. Hey. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Yeah. Good. We've been um, hanging out. Yeah. No, we uh when when Olivia walked in, we were watching um Italian silent films. Yeah, in honor pretty, of with the jazz scores for some yeah. reason. Yeah. With random and I, so I took a I took a um, film scoring class in college. Um, really? It was like the history. It was it was kind of like the theory behind th- film music Ooh. and like how necessary it is. Um, and the teacher's argument was that it is utterly not necessary, that the actions should speak for itself. Um, but so then we would like analyze film with with and without its music to see if it was still effective and then we would like put different music to it and see if it conveyed something different mm. um and then our one of our for extra credit at the end of the semester uh we were sent of like a zip folder of um medical procedure footage and we were told to and we they were she was like okay make a presentation where you find music to score it and then justify why you chose this for the action mm. it was cool I'm anyway very so, squeamish so that sounds like a nightmare to me oh yeah i chose um someone's nose getting polyps cut out of it and i said it to the mozart requiem lacrimosa <laughs> so uh. it was pretty great actually um but it made me think of um watching these er, uh, silent film clips the music was completely inappropriate it was like weird kind of like loungy like borderline like 80s jazz mm-hmm. yeah and then eleonora is like on the screen just like feeling yeah like an old woman like i'm feeling mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. like oh we're with you we don't know what this is about and then like no (laughs) yeah so um this was all part of our pre-interview research on um on your next project Mm -hmm. which we have you on to talk about so if you don't mind would you mind telling us a little bit about it well it's called in sarah's shadow the eleanora do say story and sarah in the title refers to sarah bernhardt the 19th century actress who was extremely famous for playing uh, badass chick roles like Joan of Arc and Medea um, and uh, uh, another fun... Like the Tyler Perry? <laughs> the Greek um, <laughs> the Greek uh, woman yeah. who killed all her children. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. And so uh, the, the, the play, which is an hour-long uh, dance-driven um, biopic uh, follows Eleonora on her uh, her own personal journey um, from uh, life as a uh, as a child in a touring Italian fa- family that were broke as fuck to um, the biggest star in the world um, with uh, people like George Bernard Shaw saying she was the greatest actor who ever lived. Oh wow! Um, but all the while, like she had this kind of interesting. <laughs> Um, super like modern and relatable like rivalry with Sarah Bernhardt, who was ten years older than her. Jeez. So does, she was living a little bit in Sarah's shadow, Eleanor Duse. Does Sarah play a role in, in your in your work? Yes, Sarah is a character. Played cool. by Diva Bandari. Cool. Cool. What uh so what drew you to these characters? 
Um, well, on my uh, last show, my acting coach, Sarah uh, Patent, who um, has been an actor for me in a lot of things, um, who was one of my best friends, was just randomly talking about Eleonora Duzay one day um, while we were at her house. And she was like, oh, yeah, I have the book. I should bring it because um, I thought that person sounded interesting. So then I read the book and it's written um, by Ava Legallion, who is a young, uh, a younger actress who was a huge admirer of, of Duzay's. Like, so this fangirl like seriously wrote her idol to look like a god. Wow. So reading this book, it's just like this like you think like oh this random person i've never heard about like there's a reason i've never heard about her but like no it's like no she was like omitted from our our yeah. history was she actually like omitted intentionally um i mean i i think maybe like something that w- was really interesting about eleanor is that she hated uh like the idea of like the media and like pandering to the media and mm-hmm. she has this like there's a part of the in the in the biography about uh, that's her uh, a letter of her writing to like America, specifically, of like like the way you guys do things is really like anti art, you know. Whoa. So she like really believed like pan like having a story of who you were outside of who you were on stage was just flat out wrong, yeah. and I think kind of because she didn't ever allow herself to be a personality in the ce- like celebrity sense, right that. And Sarah Bernhardt fucking loved that shit and was, like, the huge personality. Like, Sarah Bernhardt did stunts where, like, someone had to pay her in, like, gold bars before she went on their stage. Um, like, I think that's why we don't really... She isn't... Eleonora Duse is kind of a lost figure. Right. Well, and I think it's interesting because it brings up the idea of kind of how we... Bi- biographize, is that the word I'm looking for? But, like, how, kind of how we chronicle people's lives... In that, like, that's what I think, like, I know a a lot in a lot of, like, classical music history, um, you know, the things that we remember about certain composers may not, I mean, you can't, there's an argument, and this is kind of the point I'm circling around, there's an argument of whether or not you should take someone's biography and, and kind of apply it to their work or not, and, you know, there's a strong case to not do that, you know, to, like, let the work stand on its own. Well, what's really, really interesting about Eleonora is that a lot of, like, people like Strasberg and Meisner and Stanislavski all saw her perform. Mm-hmm. They were all, like, teenagers or in their 20s. And she, like, gave them the ideas that led to their ideas yeah. about acting. And that, like, that got us James Dean and the Actors Studio and all this. And she was the first, like, modern naturalistic actor, really. That that was something in the you sent us a synopsis and you said that she was like our the first one of the first modern artists and I'm wondering if you could like elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah, I think well a huge sort of uh, uh, characteristic of 19th century theater um, was that uh, people could be 60 and still be playing the ingenue like you like. Like, you could be playing these characters that were incredibly inappropriate for you because you were putting all these gestures and all this stuff that was, like, inherently fake and theatrical. And so, like, everything in, like, 19th century, like, we have Gilbert and Sullivan. Right. And, and Sarah Bernhardt, even. Yeah. Like, these things were larger-than-life figures. Like, almost like an opera. Mm-hmm. And Eleonora wanted to figure out a way where she could be, like, like, as if she was right next to you, but she was on a big, big stage. Mm-hmm. So, like, I was reading a description of Strasberg, like, listening to her uh, uh, and watching her on stage. And he said something like, she was talking 
as if like you were like her voice was like next to you, but like it was for the whole room. Wow. Like she figured out like her own techniques that were like kind of very, she was very, very secretive about them, but she like created them in a way where it looked like she had no technique, but it was very like specific and like constantly Mm -hmm. like refined. Whoa. They used to call her the mystic of the theater. I'm like, so, I'm so sad that we've never heard of her. Well, and we're about to. I know. Well, so, um, how, what has kind of like the research process looked like for you? Well, the, the, one of the issues of the biography is that this, the way it's, the story is told, it is so not dramatic at all. Like, because the whole time, like, this Ava Legalian is like, and my hero was brilliant this entire time. So there's like, if you, like, read the very surface level of this, it sounds like Eleonora is being painted as just a girl who got everything she wants. Mm-hmm. But when you, like, look at, like, this, like, the sort of chronologic, chronological order of her life, that's absolutely not true. Because her values were so different than just, like, material success. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, when she was, like, a, a young woman, after her parents, like, died. Cause, so they were all in an Italian traveling family, and they were all actors. And her mother had tuberculosis. And, and through that, like, genetics, like... Eleonora also had tuberculosis and was living with it this whole, like, her entire life while she was acting and touring around and all this stuff. But one of her first, like, um, jobs was as, like, um, in, a, in a repertory company at, with, uh, in Italy, like a big one. Um, but she, after a while, like, that's kind of what, like, oh, this was success. Some actors could spend their whole life there. She wasn't satisfied, like, with the roles she was getting there and with the, like, agency she had. So... She uh, basically, um, over time, like became an entrepreneur and owned her own company and picked the plays and like worked with people to like book the tours um, in order to like have her own agency. So like her her path is definitely like like a little strange, mm-hmm. you know. Wow, yeah. I actually. <laughs> And, like, especially considering, and I mean, that that happens today, where people aren't satisfied with, you know, the prescribed path of, you know, in that day, it would have been, you know, get in with a repertory company and then stay there the rest of your life and be a working actor and be happy with whatever you get. But, like, there are so many people now who are diverting off of that path and, have doubt about it and so the the idea of a story of someone in during the time where modern art and modern theater and modern modern artistic expression was still being shaped Mm -hmm. i think is an an inspiring and and important one but then it also makes sense to me that that kind of story would kind of be buried just because the infrastructure around the, quote, right thing to do as an artist is so strong. And so the idea of, like, you know, you could have such a fulfilling life outside of that, like, path. Yeah, it's like, I think this is very much like the anti-Hollywood story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like Sarah Bernhardt also owned her own theater and was her own boss, essentially, and became these... So essentially, not only were these two women, like, amazing actors, but they were powerful business people Mm -hmm. in the 19th century and these are women yeah that put like trousers on on stage and (laughs) 
like yeah just they were accepted they were fine they did it yeah i mean that's something that um we don't talk about enough it's just like the one that always gets me is um in uh great god pan there's that one character that's a tommy boy am i remembering that correctly think that's what it is but basically where they've kind of created this space for women to have a man's gravity in the in the social sphere yeah in in victorian england there was like this lifestyle i think i think it was ross crean um this composer that we've worked with um wrote an opera that features someone of of this lifestyle that's yeah, it's a Tommy boy where in society they are like, yes, I'm a woman, but I'm a man and you'll tr- and they were and society was like, cool. And so then they were just a man. Yeah. That's cool. But yeah. and they dressed like that's the thing that's interesting though is that it's like rife with pretense in that like they had the dress as a man and I don't know what pronouns they used, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the concept of that is intriguing. I don't know the... Yeah. You know what was also crazy was Eleonora Ducey's best friend was Isadora Duncan, the the mother of modern dance. And mm. Isadora was the... She was from San Francisco, <laughs> A, first of all. <laughs> she, came, she grew up in a family where her mother just left her father because she didn't like him anymore. Like, her mom was like... Like, and this was, like, the 18, like, the late 19th century. Like, so, like, she was just living with her mom, and, like, she was, at the age of four, she was teaching all the babies in the neighborhood to wave their arms. Like, so tiny Isadora Duncan became, like, the breadwinner of the family very quickly as this sort of, like, con man, right. <laughs> like, like, dance teacher oh my God. who was, like, I've made up this style. <laughs> this is the future. Yeah. And she was also like like and once it started like working out for her and she was really trying to like get gigs, she moved to Chicago first. Um and she was so like offended but because the only things people would like book Isadora Duncan for was like, Oh, you're sort of like this weird sideshow act. Cool. Like this isn't really dance. Right. And so quickly like she sort of started to um, reject, like, like turn these things down, even though her family was, like, starving. Oh, my God. And so, like, the in her bi- in her autobiography, it goes through, like, she went to Chicago, like, weird shit happened, she moved to New York, she ended up being, like, a fairy in Midsummer Night's Dream for, like, this guy's rap company, hated that. Um, the only other place that she would, like, perform a lot was, like, salons of rich women in the, like, upstate New York. <laughs> like, that was where they, like, got her. But then it wasn't until Europe. Yeah. Like, she went to Europe, and then she was like, oh, they understand me. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this great story of, like, this guy, like, he sees her perform in Paris, and he wants to book her at this this theater in Germany. And it's, like, a big house, and he offers her more money than she'd ever, like, been offered before. But it's, like, kind of, like, still kind of a shitty house, like, kind of a vaudeville house. And she really, like, and her mother is, like, starving. Like, they have Mm -hmm. no money. They're about to get kicked out for, like, the third time. And she still turns it down. But then a month later, she got, like, a legit, like, a legit offer. And it was so, it's it's amazing that she held out. And and she, I mean, I guess she knew. Yeah. Her insane, like, confidence and and ego were just, like, (laughs) no, it will happen. And she, like, willed it all into existence. I'm so I'm curious what you think. Like, what is it about these people? This that drive of like, 
I almost want to call it like basically the like disregard for societal norms let's say the like needing to the needing to feed your family like it's not even like anarchy like it's just because it's so driven in like this like knowing what you want to be doing thing it's a very american narrative of like the like young strappy like person who like climbs the ladder of success or like forges their way like right. like the rockefellers coming from nothing to becoming like billionaires and they did it the yeah. wrong way but yeah. what's great is that these in this story it's all women who are right. doing that yeah. and they lived and they did do it like at the same time rockefeller did it i think i don't know uh dates no. <laughs> sounds, generally in the past yeah yeah um so where this always happens talking to you it's always like there, I, there are so many paths to go down here like so i'm actually kind of curious um do you find relatability in that oh yeah oh my god yeah how so well i'm like i feel like growing up i'm a very like cocky driven confident person and like co- cocky women always make people feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. And it's, that's, like, not cool because, like, a lot of, like, like men that are confident, we just trust them. Whereas, like, when women are cocky, that's, like, kind of annoying, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... It's like, what does she have to be so proud yeah. of? And it's cool. <laughs> like, so this this story, um, I'm, I'm writing and directing, but I'm also working with choreographer Kelly Anderson, who is this fantastic artist um, of dance theater and... Like, she has made a bunch of shows over the years, and I finally got the courage up to, like, ask her to work mm-hmm. on something with me, and she was, like, into it. Yeah. And it's great, because she's also from a different generation. Like, she's a lot, she's, like, a bit a bit older than me, mm-hmm. but she's, like, such a badass. So it's almost, like, the same kind of age difference with, like, Sarah and, and Eleonora. Right. And so it's cool that, like, different generations of, and then, like, I have, we have cast members that are, like, 10 years younger than me. So, like, these, like, maybe, like, three generations of of women are, like, pulling this story up. Also, like, I mean, the story doesn't just, our, like, our version doesn't just show these people as, like, people that are completely certain the entire time. Yeah. Like, Eleanor fails a lot because she is so headstrong, because she is so ambitious, and because she is trying to figure out exactly how to uh, achieve that ideal theater and to be that 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 find that level of greatness in her performance that mm-hmm. shuts out all the noise of uh, like the media and all that other bullshit she has to deal with, and so because she is so like determined, she, when she fails, she like falls really hard. Well, so, so the story is very much like oh, every scene you, she's just going through it. Yeah. So how did you find? Because I know that's something you mentioned when you were saying you were going through the biography. Is the um. The, the way the author wrote it was very congratulatory towards her, I guess yeah. you could say, or, or there's probably a w- much better way to word that. But my uh, my curiosity for you is how did you find, as you were writing your work, um, the places to kind of highlight and the places to, like, how did you find the, the failures? Well, I've been in rehearsal since mid-July with my team of four actors, and yeah. we've been devising, so... Right. They all of them read. That's right. The, Sorry. <laughs> uh, read the, the the biographies, and some of my actors are like some of them are like fresh from college mm-hmm. and from from an act from acting programs, and that kind of is like a, a great like link between like where they are personally as humans and where and some of the stuff Eleanor had to deal with. 
like these are actors like trying to play actors and performers so it's right. an interesting like like uh like they don't have to like stretch that far to yeah. find like the humanity um so we we kind of started out just like creating lots of different like dance material of like maybe we could stage this maybe we could stage that and then trying different orders of scenes and different like building the different timelines the potential timelines and like kind of figuring out as a group um where the important events were and then the narrative started to like kind of come out of that and then i did a i wrote a draft of the script and we read it and then we argued about it for like two hours and then I was like, oh, yeah, because my first draft, I kind of went a little bit too, uh, like, um, like Eleonora kind of turned into someone who was like a little too materialistic. So I had to go back and kind of go like, well, what is it that she really wants? Because in our play, she goes to America twice mm. um, in these like these amazing like cinematic like dance montage sequences where she has to like deal with America. And so there's one, like, lead-up scene where she's telling her best friend Isadora, like, uh, sorry, I didn't tell you, but I'm going to America, like, tomorrow. And Isadora, like, being from America is just like, no, don't go. Like, this, mm-hmm. is, this is the worst thing you could possibly do. And so figuring out what, what Eleanor wanted out of America was extremely helpful in understanding, like, where she goes. Right. And so then, in order to do those rewrites, I would, uh, I, um would improvise that scene like with adjustments every time based on the circumstances and all this with the actors. So I'd figure out like how to rewrite it based on like what happened when we took the scene in a slightly different direction mm-hmm. or, and then I would do it like that day, like really fresh from having watched them over and over. Right. And there was one, there was one scene in particular that was really like tricky to get because like there was one great love of Eleanor's life. He is the last character I, how I haven't talked about yet. And his name was uh, Gabriel D'Annunzio. And he uh, was kind of like the Italian Oscar Wilde. When they worked together, he was he's 20 years younger than her. She was like, bas- he was basically like her kept guy. And mm-hmm. she got him to start writing plays. And then she started acting in them. Um, so, and they broke up because uh, he, re- he, when she was sick with her tuberculosis and all he replaced her in uh, with uh, Sarah Bernhardt. Oh. Good job, Gabriel. So yeah. they have a they have a nice little fight about that. But it was really interesting because the actress playing Eleanor is so strong and so good at like winning that we were like trying to figure out how to get this scene uh, to to end with Gabriel winning. But so we did it like ten times before we could even get close. Yeah. Because like I mean the girl playing Eleanor is like super like she's so fierce and like she is so yeah like that that character so i mean it's kind of it's kind of a great that's a great like problem to have like well how do we get the man to win i don't know (laughs) yeah and we realized i can't figure it out yeah but like (laughs) it was really great because we like realized as a group like what the scene needed to be like it's it's almost like like with these processes of devising it's like i'm as i'm playwriting all of these voices are in my head and they are also the actors Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i have a question about um Sorry, I have a question about. <laughs> I'm <doing> so the, <laughs> Tyler's mo- the way he looked when he moved was more distracting than the sound. <laughs> anyway. It was just classic hijinks. Like. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, so something you told me about Eleanor's life um, earlier, um, before we started recording, struck me as being really cool and kind of. Um, what uh, at face value seems like a 
total 180 of her values. And that is she quit acting. Oh, yeah. So that gets to be in the story, too. Like, so she, when the World War One broke out, she decided, like, I, my place is not, I can't help people be, being on the stage. I need to, like, be helping people. So she became a nurse and was uh, working on the front lines in, in World War One. In mm-hmm. World War One, one World War One broke out, not two. Yeah, she was dead by then. But well, right. Well, and she I, did that for ten years. She just left acting for ten years, trying to like help as many people as she could. Is there a way? So I, World War One is has a lot of impact on modern art in that it kind of taught people how to be horrified. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if like if there's any evidence of that impacting Eleonora's artistry. Well, it's interesting, like, right, like, around 1913, her best friend Isadora Duncan's children were driven off a cliff by the nanny and died and they drowned. And so the horror of the war kind of took a personal sort of cathartic sort of climax with that. And Isadora, like, spent months and months with Eleonora um, and they would talk about their dream production of the Bacchae. And they had been taught, like, this is something that like, came up with that they would do. Like, Eleonora would play Agave, and, and uh, Isadora would play Dionysius, and she would choreograph all of the Bacchanalian uh, rituals. Um, because Eleonora thought that the best way for Isadora to grieve would be to put everything she has into her art. And so that was kind of like a turning point for Eleonora. Um, in that, like, she kind of was like, well, you know what? I kind of need to, like, take my own advice. And so then she got back into acting. Um, I think, like, yeah, because it's like, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's hard to pinpoint exactly why other than, like, she needed to and she needed to go back mm-hmm. because she wasn't overacting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's the thing that she'd been doing since she was a baby. Yeah. So, like, our story starts with, like, Eleonora as a literally bundle in her mother's arms. And ends with her death. Um, like, like there wasn't a how, time And how long is this play? An hour. You're good at that, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you did, like, uh, crazy updated underground Dorian Gray in an hour or two. And this, yeah. I mean, what's cool about, like, biopics is, like, there's the, it's kind of, uh, and, like, big... When I say biopic, it's like that's that's a movie, sure. But I still feel like that word works Absolutely. for this because we have a lot of there's like five or six montages that like cover large stretches of time, and they are mm-hmm. completely told through visual storytelling and dance. So wow. it like allows you to move a little bit further in the narrative in a way. And mm-hmm. we have a media designer as well that's going to be helping us with like tracking the dates so people kind of feel like they are kind of moving along with time. So mm-hmm. they're, ne- they're never like, wait, how old is Eleonora? We don't, <laughs> like, yeah. So how many different components to this production are there going to be? There's going to be, there's acting, there's dancing, there's media. Mm-hmm. Is there going to be anything? I mean, not that that's not enough, but like, what all What all can people expect out of this evening? There will be lots of pop music and um, pop music from all like different like decades it's going to be very, like, anachronistic. Um, the costumes will be, like, a, a really cool uh, update on the period. But they were never going to, like, st- like they're still going to be like, this is the period. Um, 
we're finding this like yeah sort of anachronistic kind of world like my kind of inspiration design wise like or starting point was like natasha up here in the great comet that broadway musical yeah that mashes those two like i think ours is going to be a lot like prettier like a lot Mm -hmm. more like like roses and flowers and like pink cool and stuff but like I definitely wanted to, like, live in that world of, like, anachronistic modernist mm-hmm. that's, like, makes the this 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 period very, like, accessible to modern audiences. And the music will be totally modern and... Cool. I'm wondering, so, I think it's interesting that you're choosing pop music when you're dealing with an individual who was so anti-mainstream. I don't know. I just think that's cool. I don't. No question. Just a, uh, a comment. Well, I feel like the most, the mo- like the most poppy pop music happens when she's kind of losing herself, to yeah. like, because when she dates Gabriel and they go back to America, like she kind of starts playing the game a little bit. He kind of mm-hmm. like, because he is so good at it. Like one of the first things I found out about Gabriel D'Annunzio was that he faked his own death for publicity, when he was like twenty. Yeah, that would be that like would Kaufman, be the huh? like yeah. what Kaufman, Andy Kaufman. Daniel thinks that Andy Kaufman faked his own death. Oh. <laughs> There's there are some pretty intense theories online. I haven't looked it up in a while. I like got into Andy Kaufman. I like learned about Andy Kaufman. I like watched all the stuff. Then I learned everything about him. This was like a 24 hour period. Then I found a deep internet theory that proves he was alive, that he is alive, and I don't remember any of it. Okay. Besides the fact that I do remember his some of his bits. But that so would be the but that would be the antithesis of Ellen. So yeah. and they were they were together. Like he was like the love of her life. <laughs> like this guy who like and that's something we struggled with for a long time. We're like, how well she's just human, I guess. Like Yeah. She right. believes so much like uh, uh, she believes her theories of life so strongly. And then he believes his and they somehow coexisted until like they couldn't anymore. But then after that Gabriel Nunzio became he gave up writing and poetry and all that to become a fascist politician and like if you ever meet like like that's playing the game yeah sorry yeah like he pamphleted like like you know like with like he did stunts where he would like be in an airplane and he'd send his pamphlets out and Mussolini was afraid of him (laughs) what (laughs) this guy yeah like I mean his true calling really was politics all yeah but and yeah. we don't we like mention that in the play. And it, my uh, the actor playing Gabriel was uh, waiting tables the other day, and he got this. He was waiting a, a, a very Italian family, and they knew who Gabriel was. They had studied him in school, and they were asking him about our show, and they were like uh, saying things like, "Oh, well, he was like great. He was like our Shakespeare, but he was also kind of a narcissist." People kind of try to like gla- glaze over that, and then they were like, "Are you going to talk about when he became a fascist?" <laughs> oh, and, he, and I yeah, I hope Nick was like, "Yes, we are," because <laughs> we mention it. Because it's funny, like, the war happens, Eleanor becomes a nurse, he becomes a politician. Right. Oh my god. So Yeah, specifically a fascist, yeah. Specifically a fascist. So really, so really their differences lasted until the very end. Like, they continued. I like, mean, they just, like, they, they matched up, but didn't really even for a bit, and then, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it... it it seems to me that they just had passion in common. Yeah, really, that's, yeah. That's when, true. if that's the only thing you have in common, it, to me, spells a little bit of trouble. Just because, like, like not even passion in the same thing, but just passion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, fascism had a lot of, like, wanting to be a part of the arts. Like, that was a huge part of, like, wanting to build a national identity and, like, like, the fascists loved, like, like, Verdi so deeply influenced. So, like, for people that don't know opera, like, a lot of the music that this one opera composer wrote, like, became the, like, lifeblood of Italian identity. And, like, the fascists loved that. Like, and, and on top of that, fascism didn't have the, like... Like, part of the Risorgimento, you mean? No. So it's... <laughs> Good. Well, it's... I mean, it's like... It's like when Donald Trump tried to use that... Um, was it uh, was it Steely Dan or Bob Seger or um, oh I don't Billy know. Joel or some anyway some music and the musician was like you don't get what our music is about I think stop that, using it I think that the exact quote from whatever I I know what you're talking about I just don't remember the band but the quote was please stop using our music we fucking hate you yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah anyway it. um. So you're in partnership with Prop Theater for yes, this. Yes, the Prop is, Theater. Is this your first collaboration with the Prop Theater? Well, last uh, February I produced, uh, I re- directed and produced um, the the Rock Riot Girl musical Hatchet Lady, which was a huge hit at their Rhino Fest. Um, and like the year before that, my company, my other company, The Runaways, did a um, piece called Jail. And then the year before that... Uh, they let me, I was doing this production of Faust that toured different apartments, like it played a different apartment every night and the actors staged themselves. And they let me do that in the hallway during Rhino Fest. So that was like kind of when I first became friends with with them. Also, they let me do it in the apartment above the prop theater too. And that was like a fantastic show because up there, like they have tons of, uh, like Stefan's a huge Brecht and Goethe fan. So like there's all these like little Easter eggs of books and things and wow up there and so yes Stefan came to me and he was like interested in this so this show is actually running in double feature with another show called um the last days of the commune which is a um an unfinished brecht play that Stefan Brune is like cutting uh together into a like a more an hour and a half kind of length and it's a huge cast it's about um uh during the Franco-Prussian war um uh like an alt, almost like an alternate history. Uh, if all of the men died and the women and children had to like rebuild a society, so they like the 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 commune, wow. and like but apparently it doesn't work out. But it is the story of that, and wow. it's gonna have like twenty people on stage, and we're we're sort of designing our sets together. So oh well, so one thing that both of our sets are gonna have is a giant red curtain. Oh, like really? a 19th century, like, red. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And I remember when Stefan and, like, uh, Diane brought that idea up, and I was like, did you just ask? Like, yes. <laughs> I'm yeah. doing a show about, like, 19th century actors. Please put a giant red curtain on stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's really fun, because he's <laughs> like, doing media, too. So we right. had to, like, agree on where the screen was going to be. Yeah. And also make sure that we have all, like, roll-on furniture and, like, not rely on furniture too much, you know? Wow. Because, like, my sh- my show's, like, a dance show, so we need, like, as much space as possible. Right. So he's going to have, like, a roll-on cannon, and I'm going to have, like, a bench and, like, two chairs. Cool. So wow. it's, it's really fun. It's like having a buddy, like, yeah. <laughs> designing a show with, like, another director. Yeah, and it's amazing because you have to find those 
commonalities in things that aren't necessarily like the same reason to do do you know what I like yeah but yeah. it's interesting because they're both uh, like set in the 19th century right so as a result we're gonna throw a launch party on september 23rd that is a uh, turn of the century salon populated by like people like historical figures from 1880s through like to 1940s so a bunch of actors are going to be like Salvador Dali and like Virginia Woolf and like someone's going to be Gandhi. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just oh going to be God. wandering around that evening and there will be like a bar cart and one of the historical figures will work that. And Anita Luce, the author of uh, and of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, will be our host for the night. So like that's going to be a really like amazing. And we're going to do like a record party, like record player, like dance party kind of thing, like. Are you going to have, like, the gramophone, like... I, I don't know. If, I, if someone has one, they'll lend me one, I'll do it. But, but, yeah, I'm excited that, like, they give, they're giving me, like, an excuse to... Yeah, it was, like, Stefan's idea. He was like, well, what if we just, like, had, like, a salon? And I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make this happen. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be talking. Like, I'm going to be, like, releasing more stuff about that up in the next coming weeks. But it's going to be... I'm excited. So, um... My next curiosity is as you've kind of gone from project to project and kind of like learned how best to produce and how best to prepare for, you know, like, like one of the things that's striking me is um, you mentioned that uh, th- for this project, you've been devising since July. And I'm sure that the the process up until that point of just like fine tuning what the general you know, ideas behind it as, as a process too. Um, how, what are some certain things that you found that have like fine tuned the way that you produce? Um, finding like a really reliable rehearsal space that's cheap. Yeah. And like kind of building a relationship with the people. Like I got to rehearse at about face Yeah. for the last like, like month and a half. And like, they're just so lovely. Like, they're the best. And I do it, like, I, with this show, I'm rehearsing during the day because mm-hmm. of my choreographer's availability. And so we had to cast actors that could, like, could rehearse during the day. And it's been, like, the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. I mean, every time I, I sort of, like, try and change something up on myself to see how that feels. Like, with Dorian Gray, my show from the summer, right. I rehearsed twice a week um, for two months. Like, and having the days very, very separate. Mm-hmm. Um, but for this show, I've had, I've rehearsed three days in a row, um, three mornings in a row. And then I like work on the script or whatever, like the rest of the week and all the administrative stuff. And then I go back into it. So it's like really, really like an intense short period every week, mm-hmm. but like also like half my week. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm seeing how that feels too. Cool. But I think like every show like has completely different, like, right. well, yeah. like, like uh, like uh, limitations and needs yeah needs and like you have to sort of be creative in how you can like achieve that mm-hmm. and every time I like learn more and more you know um yeah and so the, my next uh kind of question can potentially piggyback on that maybe not we'll see what you think <laughs> so like the um my other thing is that I get the sense that just kind of like throughout your time as a person that produces um you know I, the 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 
stories that you tell are a lot of times are things I I personally relate to them. I'm sure I think Maureen maybe does too. Mm-hmm. But the idea of like creating things in an apartment that is just this kind of one off, kind of fringy like way or like you know in it, oh you'll let me use a hallway great I'll make a show out of it. Um, and so my curiosity for you is as you've um, developed and kind of made more. I don't want, I, I I hesitate to call it establishment, but just maybe more um less site specific, more like in theater theaters. Yeah, and maybe keeping so this is basically what my question is, is keeping <laughs> what the magic of like hyper modern and site specific and, and fringe and all of these things, keeping that magic while also Working to working towards goals that can potentially be understood by an audience that is used to a traditional theater experience. Well, this next show is in a is in a sixty seat traditional yeah. theater. Yeah. Um, I'd say that like a, a positive of that is I get to work more uh, closely and with designers, mm-hmm. like in a way where they have a little bit more resources. Um, right. Than what I can offer them depending on like because i i work in a lot of non-traditional spaces yeah. so like you don't have like a lighting grid absolutely you have right. to like figure out some other way of doing it so and and I'll, a couple of the designers um on this show i've worked with before um so i've been able to like give them a little bit bigger of a budget and i like really trust them and there will be like definitely original pieces like made for this mm-hmm. and um so that that said that like that helps yeah um, that's like like getting to just like delve a little bit more uh, hands on with my collaborators in design. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I think I need to keep absolutely keep the magic. Absolutely. Of the DIY like setting, no matter what. Like I think that's what's what people really like about my stuff, and I want to like figure out how to keep on uh, taking that and bringing it to like an even more spectacular mm-hmm. level. Um, I'm, I'm not necessarily like trying to like be a freelancer all over town. I realized right. that, um, like I, I, w- I want to work at like a couple theaters that I really like, like, and I think I'll gel with, but I don't want to like be anywhere where they're, um, like I'm just trying to do it for like the name or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Because like r- running pot magic gives me a lot of agency and Absolutely. actually like a lot of, a lot more pros <laughs> Than like just being at the mercy of mm-hmm. um, another producer. I mean, it's it's. I'm gonna have a show that I wrote that's being produced and directed by other people next next year. Like in the in March it opens, and so and I'm really excited about like all those people mm-hmm. and what they have to bring. So that'll be like an entirely new experience for me. Um, I mean, I had I had plays produced um, in New York and. Pittsburgh when I was like 22 and 21 but I kept working with male directors and I it was really like they didn't really vibe or I didn't really mm-hmm. there I, I just that's why I started directing my own work yeah was because of my negative experiences with other directors yeah um but also I studied directing yeah in school so it's not like I was like not I was coming like, to let's a give this a shot yeah yeah right yeah well that's a similar thing with composers end up having to learn have to that like make a they make a point to learn how to run a rehearsal process or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just a composer. because it's realistic. Yeah, I used to be a composer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's so like that also probably has a huge influence on how I I think mm-hmm. about stuff and your desire for agency. 
Yeah. And, uh, yeah, because, like, when you're a composer, when you're, when you're a composition major, everyone needs you to learn how to conduct. Mm-hmm. And I really had absolutely no interest in that. <laughs> so that kind of lasted, not, that lasted a semester. Yeah. yeah. Conduct, well, <laughs> conducting is one of those things that's, like, it's just hard. And, like, it's its own. It's cool, but yeah. it's not something I want to do. <laughs> and it's its own skill. Like, it's really, you have that, to, like. That being said, if I were to go back to school for a music-related thing, I might want to go back to school for conducting. I, like it, like I said, it's a cool thing, but you really have to have that, like instrumentalist's brain. Yeah, which I just don't have. I guess I'd say like the the institutions that I'm interested in working with are are like institutions led by people that are like really trying to do something different, right? And really trying to change things on a mass level, yeah. rather than like I don't necessarily want to be like just play into what somebody wants me to do. Mm-hmm. So is it a matter of being like decisive? Yeah. And, like, really setting boundaries of, you know, I don't know. Being, being like, uh, sharpening, like, my five-year goal, yeah. my five-year plan in a way that's, like, very targeted. I'm not very good at that. I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. But it's getting, it's getting clearer and clearer. Right. That's, cool. Well, like, for example, like, I'm trying to think of, like, something that's really cool. It's in New York City, but, like, the public works thing at the, at the public theater where mm-hmm. they have... Mm-hmm artists create a giant show with all laymen right there's like no there's no like professional actors in it and they mm-hmm. get to create this like like Lear de Bassene from New Orleans is very like like that's her thing and it's very mm-hmm. very inspiring to me yeah and that like the public doing something like that so cool well yeah and that was like what Vile was all about when we talked to um Johnny Johnson folks yeah just yeah, because the idea of, like, it was so in the ether in the, like, early 1900s, this, like, collective, like, let's use the people. Yeah, I'd say, like, I always admired more so than, like, I don't know. I don't know what the other example is, but, like, the expressionists were always, like, oh, I, I like, I, I grew up kind of being, like, no, I don't want to, like, just, like, be James Cameron. I want to be, like, part of an art movement. Yeah. I was like, no, I want to be, like, in the expressionist, man. Like, that would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than, like, I want to be this, I don't know. Like, I love Diane Paulus and, like, those powerhouse women, visual, like, directors, mm-hmm. Julie Taymor. Um, except, like, she's kind of crazy, so maybe not her, but. And yeah. she, yeah. And mm-hmm. she kind of did weird things. <laughs> I don't, I, it's not okay My- that people died in Spider-Man. Like, that's not okay. No. Well, and also... I think it's always interesting when, like, you watch a mo- like the first movie that a stage director does, where they're like on location. Mm-hmm. Um, I this is a this is an opinion of my mom's that I'm going to project out of my Ooh. mouth right now, where she, she was bothered by, um, the Mamma Mia movie, because she was like, why she was like I could tell that it was a stage director, because. No one else would put Pierce Brosnan and Meryl Streep in such intense natural sunlight because they both looked really old in that movie. And it was just like interesting. And it was just like Pierce Brosnan looked like shit in that movie. (laughs) Um, But yeah, just sorry. Whenever I, which is, which makes me a, a, like kind of a basic person in this, in this regard. But whenever I hear Julie Taymor, that's where I go. Her one good movie is Frida. 
Yeah? Yeah. Frida is awesome. I don't think she wrote the script. I think it's a really solid script, and then she just, like, did Julie Taymor on it, and it's, like, Mm -hmm. it's much better than Across the Universe. She did Across the Universe, too? Yeah. Across the Universe has, like, moments, but it's, like, overall, you're like, what the hell is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I remember being very excited about that movie when it first came out, because I grew up in a Beatles house. Oh. And then I saw it, and it was, like... Uh, 17 year old Maureen was unimpressed that being said I think I have that a file of that movie on that computer it's okay yeah it's one of those things where it's like sometimes you're bored and sometimes you watch across the universe Mm -hmm. because it's like a musical and it's fun yeah 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 and it's got its moments like we said yeah it does have its moments I mean like in terms of things I want to do like uh or uh, like I, every Tuesday, me and this cinematographer have been meeting with these actors, and we've been just, like, shooting stuff. Try, I'm trying to get good at it. I'm cool. not good yet, but I will, mm-hmm. I'm going to keep on. We're going to keep on trucking. I like him a lot. Yeah. He's great. Joe Gadrolt, he's cool. That's awesome. It's yeah. hard to, like, it's an interesting thing, and it's something that you kind of touched on before, which is that, like, obviously cinema, like, theater can be very cinematic, mm-hmm. um, and it can't, but... The skills in which one considers an audience when directing and uh, versus um, works a camera lens to be a way that you, like, focus, like, the way that you shoot Mm -hmm. focus, the way that you, like, shoot a scene, like, it's... The way you light a scene. I'm learning a lot of, like, don't, why did you do that kind of thing. Well, I think it's, it's, I really like this sort of, like, um... Averages weekly. If we have a four-hour chunk, we make things. We watch them the next week. We learn from them. We just rinse and repeat. Yeah. Like I'm learning. Like I'm learning so much just like doing it with these people, and like also like I learn a lot about them as we're like all growing together. Mm-hmm. Oh, do you, you work know? with the same group of actors? Yeah. Because cool. we're so so. With this project started as this girl has this incredible. Um, true story that because we're still like working out the rights stuff because of certain people need to like sign off on it um she has this incredible story that uh is totally true and totally weird and awesome and we want to do it but like we're waiting on this guy to sign a release and then Mm -hmm. we can start working on that um because we're not going to do anything before that so the last couple weeks since we kind of learned we're like Oh, we really need to get these from this guy. Like it's mm-hmm. it's definitely happening. Like he's he definitely like agreed, um, but she just needs to get him to sign. Um, we've been we started to come up with a guy, some ideas for some short films. So we've been like focusing on these tiny projects and trying cool. to make that work. And the, yeah, the actors they're all like pretty recent graduates from uh, one of the schools, and they're like just really hungry and talented. And I've worked with some of them before in other shows. Um, and it's cool. It's like, also, we all are kind of contributing writing too to that. We'll have like a bunch of free writing sessions, sessions with ideas and we'll go around and like pick maybe like two ideas from the whole group mm-hmm. and we'll be like, okay, let's figure out how to shoot that. Yeah. So we've been doing a lot of like, okay, that's the idea. Like, like, let's like come up with something. And now we're starting to do like more trying to turn that into a script right. kind of thing. So cool. that's my other like adventure because eventually I want to real be able to do film stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting on that little path. Cool, <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Yeah. 
Well, we have a few minutes left, so the last thing we do with all of our guests is a one-minute plug for anything they have upcoming. Sometimes it's very obvious, like an upcoming project they've written and devised with their people and they're working on it. <laughs> Otherwise, it can be, um, you know, things that you're consuming, uh, self-care stuff. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, um, tomorrow and Saturday, I'll be in uh, a writer in the Nothing Without a Company's 24-hour festival. I've never done one before. I'm really excited. Um, and then I have this launch party uh, called uh, the Prop Theater and Pop Magic Presents Salon. And that's September 23rd mm-hmm. at 7.30 at the Prop Theater. And I'll be sending more out about that. Also, uh, a group of really awesome female producers, um, they call themselves Fierce, are going to be producing my play, Mary Shelley Sees the Future, next year in March. But they're throwing a witch's ball fundraiser for it on October 7th at the Frontier. So look for that. That's going to be awesome. There'll be a little pop-up scene for Mary Shelley. And it's a witch's ball, so come dressed. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, my show in Sarah's Shadow, the Eleonora Dusa story, opens October 27th. Um, and runs Fridays and Saturdays at 10.30 at the Prop Theater. And there's a couple Mondays at 8, nice. no, November 6th and no, December 4th. And that runs through October 27th through December 9th. That's a crazy long run. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. Damn. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I've been Daniel Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. If you want to keep up with what we are up to, there are a lot of ways to do that. You can head over to scopymag.com. That is our site. We post all of our articles. We post all of our podcast episodes, and we post all of our videos up there. Um, Articles-wise, there's a bunch of uh, recent stuff. I just recently wrote a piece on... We've, I've been doing, in the last week, doing a lot of like local politics stuff, and the most recent thing was about the... I did a I did some research on the Indiana voucher program that Pence really developed um, and basically proved that it was racist and a waste of taxpayer money. So that's pretty cool, so check that out, um, because Illinois just voted on a voucher program, and we're gonna be implementing that soon so it's you know because fuck public education right yeah anyway um besides that uh you can keep up with us on social media facebook instagram twitter itunes and google play under scopy mag s-c-a-p-i-m-a-g leave reviews and all that good stuff say hey write us scopymag at gmail.com uh did i already spell it (laughs) okay and as always i'm here to emphasize the importance of donation we run on a shoestring budget uh everything that we've been able to do up to this point has been through your generosity so first of all thank you so much second of all we need a little bit more help um there are a couple ways that you can give if you are in a position to give you can head to our website scopymag.com go to our about section there you can read a little bit more about us you can also choose to give in two ways first way is to do a one-time donation if you choose to do that you will have our sincere gratitude you will also get a handwritten note of thanks um if you uh, choose to give on a monthly level. There are some cool things. Um, if you are, uh, can give at $5 a month, um, you know, you will be eligible for some cool stuff coming up, actually. Um, we're about to pick up some pieces of art that we're going to give away to um, new donors as well as existing donors, because I think we're getting a couple pieces from a woodworker, which are like, he's like making us like little flags 
um, that he like carved. I think one of them is going to be so cool. Chicago flags. And then the other one is going to be like a carving of the Great Lakes. <laughs> so become a donor, possibly get a cool hand carved wooden flag. Honestly, if the next donor will probably get one yeah, of those. The next, so. don- the next donor at any level will get one of those. The um, Any donor who gives at $10 or more gets unlimited studio photography from Daniel. So, ooh, ooh. Ooh, ooh. give a little, give a lot. And if you can't give, then listen, participate, and share. Cool. Thanks again so much for listening. Go out and make something. Yep.